the Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, folks. Big week for Luke Savage. Uh, the big project, much alluded to, never fully articulated, has been announced. What is it? Seeking social democracy. We uh, were able to finally yeah, reveal the cover last week. I'm going to say what the book is. It's a book. He co-wrote a book. <laughs> Yes, I uh, co-wrote a book with uh, Ed Broadbent, the uh, former leader of the New Democratic Party of Canada, sort of from the, the mid-70s up until about 1990. One of the most important political figures in Canadian history, folks. Yeah, the book will be out on October 10th. Uh, it's available for pre-order now. I'm really pleased with how it turned out. I mean, you know, it's partly a memoir, but it also features dialogues between myself and Ed and also uh, my two colleagues, Jonathan and Francis. Ed is a fascinating interlocutor. I mean, if you're an American listener in particular, I mean, you, you may never uh, have heard of Ed Broadbent, but he's someone who I admired a lot and whose work and, and writing I was very interested in before I knew him personally. He's somebody who's incredibly thoughtful. You know, he was an academic before he was a politician. Uh, he grew up in Oshawa, which big, uh, big union town, born in the 1930s, around the time of uh, the big Oshawa strike, which you know, effectively created industrial unionism in North America. By the 1980s, Ed became the most popular you know, individual politician in Canada, and he took the parliamentary left in Canada to greater electoral heights than it had reached before. He was friends through the Socialist International. He was uh, friends with great American socialist Michael Harrington, who wrote a lovely flourish uh, about Ed in his 1988 autobiography, The Long Distance Runner. I'll leave the last word on this to Michael Harrington, who wrote, Ed Broadbent, the leader of the New Democratic Party of Canada, was another leader who strove mightily to see it that the SI, the Socialist International, met the requirements of morality as well as of politics. He was living proof that even in North America, an intellectual can be a serious and effective politician. He regularly tops the Canadian polls as one of the most admired figures in his country. Indeed, when I spoke in Canada, I often said, thinking of Ed and his comrades, that I came from the politically underdeveloped country to the south. In this case, Broadbent also demonstrated that ethical sensitivity and passion had a crucial play in our movement. I'll have lots more to say about the book in the coming months. Seeking Social Democracy, available for pre-order now from ECW Press and out on October the 10th. Well, I've spent a lot of the last few days thinking about things that are pablomatic. Oh my God. Uh, folks, folks. Kill me. It's grating to say the word. Grating to say pop. It's not a word. I, I like how loud. you corrected yourself there, but it's not. It's not a word. <laughs> it's not even a word. Uh, but yes, this is the Picasso art exhibit curated by noted Picasso hater Hannah Gadsby at the Brooklyn Museum. More specifically, I've been thinking about that withering review by Jason Farrago, one of a couple of withering reviews that appeared. Um, uh, I saw uh, I saw someone on Twitter comment that reading that piece by Farrago felt like a fever breaking. And I, I have to say, I felt exactly the same way, as did uh, numerous colleagues I spoke to who encountered it themselves. That was, I mean, there was a, a collective reaction action of almost I mean I saw multiple people say that it was like the death knell of a certain cultural sensibility that had reigned supreme for half a decade and I'm not here to heap more scorn on Hannah Gadsby because I think they've received disproportionate attention from every direction like I'm not a fan <laughs> but um you know when the front page of Netflix is like nine stand-up specials of like Dave Chappelle and you know one of them's Hannah Gadsby you know not only is Hannah Gadsby not 
the chief problem, but Hannah Gadsby is this kind of oppositional force that really just serves to like uphold, you know, uphold the other forces. But yeah, like in that collective relief that greeted that Times article by Farrago, there's this sense that somebody figured out a way to attack this kind of mode of discourse around art that was not reactionary. Yeah, I would I would maybe have a slightly friendly amendment to that. And I'm not saying this to take away from uh, the piece, which I think is really brilliantly done. And if you haven't read it, Jason Farrago in the New York Times on Hannah Gadsby's Pablo Mad, it's Pablo Matic exhibit, very much worth your time. But I'm not sure I'm not sure it's the case so much that people hadn't figured out how to do that. I, I think it's that the climate has hitherto not been very receptive to that kind of criticism. I think the fact that that piece appeared in the New York Times at all clearly signifies something. I think a lot of the points it was making, one of the reasons why uh, they resonated so strongly, um, and again, I'm not taking away from Mr. Farrago, who did a fantastic, uh, fantastic job on it. But one of the reasons why I think it resonated so much is because it's something that many people have felt very strongly, but feel like it's kind of impermissible to say in some way. The climate has often not been such that you can just say like, well, I know this has certain aspirations to, you know, having something to say about social justice or something, but come on, this isn't very good. That's a sentiment I think a lot of people feel. And there hasn't really been like a popular mass climate where it's, you know, always felt permissible to say that. And so instead, it sort of appeared at the margins. And of course, there's plenty of reactionary versions of it as well. Well, one of the reasons why the Farrago piece was good is because he, as a critic, is obviously seriously engaged with the history of feminist art and theory. Um, by the way, in case you're listening to this 50 years from now and have no context for what this was, the Brooklyn Museum, as part of you know a worldwide series of exhibits and celebrations of the 50th anniversary of Picasso's passing— um, they decided to do it a little differently, have noted Picasso hater Hannah Gadsby do a sort of anti-Picasso exhibit where it's like some examples of Picasso's art and then various examples of of women artists, not necessarily women who are inspired by Picasso or are responding to him. Or Literally just, just decontextualized. Like, yeah. And, and let's hear it for women. And one of the reasons the piece is effective is because Farrago was actually able to think of calling for more serious context and engagement with the history of this art. You know, over the last decade, and especially since 2017, there's been this enormous momentum around interrogating or challenging or disrupting or demolishing altogether the canon. We've talked about this a lot on the podcast. And in the world of cinema, which is my primary field of expertise, I think for the most part, the process has been good and productive. Like you look at the recent Sight and Sound Greatest Films poll, and I think obviously there are movies on there, there are placements on there that I might object to. Obviously, there are, you know, there's a chorus of voices who would say, oh, Jean Dielman's only number one because everyone wanted to have a female filmmaker on their ballot. You know, you hear that. But at the end of the day, Jean Dielman should be up there alongside Citizen Kane and Vertigo. It's good that, you know, movies like Wanda or Black Girl or Killer of Sheep are embedded in the canon now. All that's good. It's a more interesting canon. And I think that Farrago piece actually points to and is an example of what's been productive about the last 10 and particularly five years of discourse. You know, at one point he says, you know, why is there not even a single female cubist in there? Why not instead of this thing that's a sort of haha male tears, Picasso's a, a right tosser. He's a he's right. a bloody, right. bloody fool, you know. Instead yeah, he's of a he's a dude bro. Yeah, instead of that, why not something that's like, who are the women influenced by him? Who are the women who responded to him? 
the note of like, it's not even concern, but it's something I want to like put a pin in is the fact that there's been this broad backlash, largely right wing of like anti-woke stuff. And the vision of like going forward that the Farrago piece represents, I think is one that I hope, I hope we can find a way to get behind rather than just an altogether kind of like a blanket dismissal of some of the discourses that have happened over the last 10 years, just because certain of them have gotten annoying, you know? Because, you know, you talk about, you mentioned rightly that the winds in the air are such that a piece like this, you know, would be published in the New York Times, where it probably wouldn't have five years ago. Like, it's part of a broader context where there's been a much broader backlash to, like, quote unquote, woke stuff. I'm not even sure I would characterize it, uh, you know, the piece as, as being about, uh, you know, woke. What it, well, it's against like vapid culture that claims to be social justice oriented. Or just claims to have content or substance and doesn't. I mean, the thing that I really appreciate about it was the case it made for how infantile a particular approach to quote unquote art has really become. I mean, there has been a view that what matters about something is not whether it's interesting or challenging. Those are not the criteria we use anymore to make qualitative judgments about whether something is good or bad or interesting or insightful or beautiful or ugly or whatever. Instead, what people want, and I think the piece articulated this very well, is just a very blunt and crude and didactic message that tells them that you don't have to engage with something challenging, whether it's either morally or aesthetically That's challenging. That's right. It's like this is giving you permission to be the kind of person who does. I don't, I don't have to care about Pablo Picasso. So, or, or whatever. And there's probably, you know, there's plenty of better examples of this that are not, they're not about Picasso, just about all kinds of sort of less august and more pedestrian, you know, pieces of art or culture. But where I did think the Farrago piece, you know, you know, broke some new ground was in, was in that part of it, you know, figuring out a sort of a non-snobbish and sort of just pro-art kind of, pro-artistic <laughs> kind of way to just say like, look, it's really infantile to only want art that affirms, you know, a shallow perspective on something. Shouldn't you want to be challenged? Well, this is the part where we take a break in the podcast uh, to do some shameless plugs for our Patreon. That's right. Patreon.com slash Michael and us. For five Yankee dollars per month, you get, well, years and years of content at this point, but an extra episode every week. Uh, recently, we talked about Danny Boyle's quintessentially post-Thatcherite movie, Shallow Grave. This week, we're going to be talking about, you know, an old favorite of yours, of mine, of, of everyone's, Tim Burton's Ed Wood. Yeah, and if you happen to be a fan of Pink Floyd, now would be a good time to sign up because we're going to have something pretty interesting on that paired to an interview that I'm very proud of that's going to be coming soon. Now, we got a few very kind five-star reviews recently that people sent in via various podcast apps. We now are professional enough at the business of podcasting that we do remember to actually plug patreon.com slash Michael and us. But I think we're still not very good at asking those of you listening to rate and review the show on your podcast app of choice. I know it's annoying. I know that every single podcaster and YouTube creator is constantly bludgeoning you to like and subscribe, but it really is a big help to us. 
you don't have to say much in your review. Just the sheer number of reviews and you know the star ratings help us appear. And only five stars, please. I don't want to <laughs> like. Don't, I don't want constructive criticism. I don't want. Don't give me any of that four star fucking like you know whatever. I think I mentioned already, but my favorite one we got recently was a four star one, which observed that uh, you know the hosts at times seem to genuinely dislike each other. Uh, and interesting, <laughs> interesting that they noticed that. <laughs> So, you know, Will, it's been a busy time for me. Uh, we, you know, had the cover reveal for the book. I was also in a video last week. I did a collaboration with Justice Democrats. You can find that on my Twitter or on their YouTube page about fake news. Uh, it was really fun to do uh, video stuff. Basically, you know, sort of adapted my article about, uh, you know, sort of profit seeking being one of the principal drivers of misinformation. And, um, you know, Austin and the team at Justice Democrats really did a phenomenal job. So uh, check that out. We'll include a link to it in the notes. But it's been a busy time for me, and I just find, you know, I don't know about you, but when, when I'm busy and I get to the evenings and, you know, sort of the day is finishing more like at 7.30 or 8 as opposed to, you know, 4.30 or 5. You know all about this these days as somebody with not one but two podcasts. Don't I know it, brother? You don't, you don't see me editing this shit at midnight, so, it, so it's still a little topical by the morning. <laughs> What I like to do when I'm in, uh, you know, when I'm in a state of grace, you know, I like to, uh, you know, not quite as busy. I like to, you know, read a book in the evenings or whatever. I've been doing a bit of gaming because that's all my brain sort of has the bandwidth for. I don't have the bandwidth to do, you know, I'm, you know, I'm going to get Elden Ring, folks. People keep asking me, have you played Elden Ring? Not yet. I'm going to. But that's like a big game that's like intimidating to even try. So one of my go to's when I just need good, uncomplicated fun is Call of Duty. Okay, Call of Duty is fun because any Call of Duty game, you just you're just dropped into the action and you're shooting people who are often Nazis, which is a good way to relax your brain in the evening. Now, the Call of Duty games I've been playing since I was a kid, and I think it's fair to say they generally have pretty horrendous politics. You know, the ones I would play as a kid, the story would always be something. It would always be some like country that's like an extremely right wing Bush era conservatives idea of what like a country that ends in Stan is like. There would always be some kind of U.S. intervention going on because there's just, you know, a, a stereotypical banana republic dictator. You know, he's he's doing human rights abuses and we, we got to stop it something like that the one of the most recent cult one of my favorite examples of this this might be the worst thing politically they've ever put in call of duty although people can correct me i haven't played them all but call of duty modern warfare that came out i guess three years ago now uh has this whole plot where you know it's the highway of death which was you know where coalition forces principally the united states bombed the retreating iraqi army as it was pulling out of kuwait just absolutely horrific but then the game reimagines it as a russian war crime <laughs> Which is just, I mean, it has to be seen to be believed. But the latest game I've been playing is called Call of Duty Vanguard. This came out in 2021. It's kind of a slight game. You finish the campaign in about five or six hours. I know, you know, people get these and they play the multiplayer. I find the multiplayer on Call of Duty too stressful. Other people are too good. I can't be bothered to get good enough at it to be competitive. Some people have the patience for that. I have the patience of that for other multiplayer games, not for this one. So I like the Call of Duty campaigns. And Call of Duty Vanguard uh, is set during the Second World War, which I recently replayed Call of Duty World War II, which I really liked. 
Although it has the limitation that, you know, it starts on D-Day and then it ends like, you know, it's all just kind of the Western Front in like post-June 1944. You know, you're on the Western Front, so you never get to Berlin because, you know, obviously the Red Army got there first. But this game has a kind of ingenious premise, even though it's a little contrived, where you play as various members of this special forces team. You know, it's all centered around this mission they do right as the war is ending, but they get captured in the at the end of the first mission. And so what it's mostly about is getting the prehistory of each character. And, you know, there's an Australian, there's a, you know, a Brit, there's an American, and there's a young Soviet woman who's like this elite sniper. Um, And so you get to play as her during the Battle of Stalingrad. And so the game takes you all over the world. You get to be in the Pacific, you get to be, you know, uh, on the Eastern Front, on the Western Front. Fantastic. And I was astonished at the portrayal, uh, in particular, of the Russian character, who is probably the funnest person to play as. It is just straight a kind of uh, retelling of the Second World War, where it's like, uh, yep, these are the good guys. Like, we're all on the same team here to uh, smash the Third Reich, which I don't know, I feel like is just something that in a sort of uh, fun and uncomplicated way is not uh, the kind of thing I would generally associate with Call of Duty. Anyway, I had a lot of fun with this game. It's the kind of game that's really fun to play with headphones. You put on headphones, you crank the volume way up, and these battles are so unbelievably vivid. I've never liked the Call of Duty games that's like slow kind of special forces, like stealth stuff as much. I like the giant battles. And so this game, you know, there's a level where you get to fly a plane during the Battle of Midway. So you're like dive bombing Japanese carriers, and then you get shot down, and you're just getting stalked uh, in the jungle by guys that, if they see you, will charge you with bayonets absolutely terrifying my heart was pounding anyway i had a, I had a lot of fun with this and it's a nice break from call of duty games that reimagine american war crimes as russian ones <laughs> well you know who my favorite character in call of duty is 12 term house rep from texas's second congressional district charles nesbitt <laughs> wilson who almost single-handedly brought down the berlin wall that's right folks we're talking about mike nichols 2007 classic charlie wilson's war this has been a long time coming we've had a lot of requests for this i feel like this is one of those movies that was tailor-made for our podcast and i will just say off the top This is one of the most insidious things we've ever watched for this podcast. I hated this. I was viscerally repelled by it in ways that I... remember, we used to on this podcast say semi-regularly, this is the worst thing we've ever seen. Like, when we we watched the Robin Williams Man of the Year, like in episode like 30 or something, (laughs) I remember at the start of that episode, I said, I feel in my bones that this is one of the worst movies ever made. And that movie... I mean, it's awful, obviously, but... It's basically Fellini compared to this. Well, it's just, it's nowhere near as evil as this movie is. I don't know. Congressman! No, no, no. You get to come to Charlie. Can we uh, get you a drink? It's 10 o'clock in the morning. Fair enough, I guess. I'm just wondering what you do for a living. I'm Charlie Wilson. I represent the Texas Second... I'm standing on the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan. Afghans are now ready to fight a war against the Soviets. If they get weapons, they say they will win. This is six wealthiest woman in Texas. Joanne. I have been passionately involved with the cause of the Afghans since the day the communists marched in. Why is Congress saying one thing and doing nothing? Well, tradition mostly. 
Yes, this movie, I mean, you know, here's your here's your liberal Hollywood, right? Here's your super leftist Hollywood at work. Thank God T- Tom Hanks has been killed and replaced by a clone. <laughs> Hollywood, as the hated Bush presidency is winding down, is serving up this film where the message is basically like... Don't cut and run. Don't cut and run. Remember when we did good, noble interventions and, you know... Our interventions are always uh, well-meaning and they get fumbled because we, we leave too early. That's the problem. Right. And what's so funny about it is that the actual story this movie is telling... I mean, all of these characters are so unbelievably greasy, like evil people. The Julia Roberts character, who is the love interest for the sort of potty mouthed, you know, horny Charlie Wilson character played by Tom Hanks. I mean, she's just like a right wing Christian nationalist fanatic. And the film wants you to be like, oh, I mean, this is fine. She's on the side of the angels. Maybe she just needs to tone it down a little bit so we don't lose the, you know, the Muslims that we need to smash, you know, the real evil of communism. As long as you don't tell me that the delightful Philip Seymour Hoffman in the comedy relief supporting role of Gus Avrakotos is problematic at all. Right. So in real life, Avrakotos was the main liaison between the United States and the far right military junta in Greece after the coup in 1967. And he worked for the CIA, but he was a collaborationist with this like absolutely grotesque and horrendous regime. And once again, the movie wants to remember that this is liberal Hollywood is telling you to remember this guy as you know, a, a, a patriot who, you know, yeah, sure, he had to, you know, muddy his hands or whatever, but doesn't even mention his background as working with the far right government in Greece. Absolutely grotesque, horrendous. Well, we've said before on the podcast that Tom Hanks is he's interesting because he's kind of the ur American liberal and he means to be that he takes that seriously. You look at his filmography and that's that's what he's trying to be. And here he combines forces with two of the other Ur-American liberals, Aaron Sorkin and Mike Nichols, to create something that's kind of like, you know, it's the ultimate American rich liberal movie because it's incredibly cynical while also being incredibly, it's like, fucking, ma- it's, maudlin. It's so fucking maudlin. Cloying. It's gonna, uh, we're, we're gonna have to pace ourselves here, and, but it is... It, those two impulses, you know, extreme cynicism and extreme <laughs> sentimentality. We, we, will, we will come back to the movie, but I... I if you're doing wanna... the syllabus of obama era cinema this is the first movie yeah that's right this is it's pioneering like the sensibility that would define obamaism and sort of reach its zenith circa 2012 uh, even though the movie came out in 2007 but it's it's predicting that now we will come back uh, more directly to charlie wilson's war in a bit but i want to read you will uh, something that was published recently by nancy gibbs the former editor-in-chief at time magazine she's also the director of the shorenstein center on media politics and public policy at Harvard University. This was an op-ed published May 31st. At Harvard, Tom Hanks offered an increasingly rare moment of grace. Oh, thank God. And so I'm just, I'm going to read this for you, Will. I think we have made Tom Hanks, you know, kind of one of our beats. You have been very principled and unwavering in your anti-Tom Hanks. Well, uh, let me just say, you know, people like Tom Hanks, Roman Polanski, Woody Allen. You've got to separate the artist from the art. He's a he's a great actor. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that this piece probably needs no no exposition beyond what's in it. So I'm just going to go straight in. The first sentence is, this is a fan letter. 
Commencement speeches are trampolines, elevating and entertaining with just enough risk to keep things interesting. So many ways to go wrong. Faux erudition from civilians. Faux folksiness from scholars. A trap for tryhards who would be crushed to know how few graduates remember a word that was said on graduation day. And usually there's no great loss. I don't agree with the premise of the article. It's like, what, do you remember the commencement speech? Like, I don't. Like, it doesn't matter. Well, was yours given by Tom Hanks? Fair enough. But long after I forgot what was said, I will remember what was done in a class I got to watch up close, a master class in class and wisdom about the moment we find ourselves in. When Tom Hanks, beloved actor, occasional author, typewriter aficionado, and most trusted person in America spoke at Harvard's 372nd commencement, he gave a performance in which the unscripted layers surpassed the careful text. And I'm betting those layers left a deeper mark on the more than 9,000 graduating students, blah, 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 blah. Spotlights brighten, spotlights burn, and people such as Hanks who seldom escape the beam are either strengthened or scarred. For a sol- I mean, this is just, I'm sorry, but this is, it's the, the it's tone painting of such this. a picture. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I'm there. <laughs> For a celebrity who has walked many a red carpet, the traditional commencement procession through Harvard Yard was just one more stroll, though as is <laughs> often the case with the movie stars you are used to seeing on a huge screen, Hank seemed almost small in, in the priestly robe and goofy cap, small and strangely unprotected. No phalanx of guards, no barricades keeping the cameras contained. You know, here he's just Tom, you know? (laughs) Just a joyously disordered profession down a winding path lined with very noisy seniors held back by nothing but restraint or respect. I think I feel like that's an important detail that pertains to where this article is going. So look, there's a few more paragraphs like this. Yeah, what does Tom say? Yeah, let's let's get to that part of it. The language of the academy is increasingly centered on who or what is centered, what voices, what values. And there wasn't the least doubt on a day that also honored a Nobel Prize winning chemist, a magisterial historian, a groundbreaking biochemist, a media pioneer, and a four-star admiral that Dr. Hanks was the center of attention. It takes an astute understanding of human physics to redirect all those energies and center the students. Okay, there's more, there's a few more paragraphs in the same vein before we get to the the details of what he actually said. I don't know if he's going to live up to this description. In his Pericles-esque commencement address. So I'm going to skip over a bit. And when it was time for Hanks to deliver his his formal message, the script, while occasionally overwritten, rhymed with the mission. Flapping banners exalted the university's motto, Veritas, and Hanks took up the battle cry. The truth to some is no longer empirical. It's no longer based on data nor common sense oh, nor wow. even common decency, he said. What an original <laughs> truth observation. Truth is now considered malleable by opinion and by zero-sum endgames. Imagery is manufactured with audacity and with purpose to achieve the primal task of marring the truth with mock logic to to achieve with fake expertise, with false sincerity, with phrases like, I'm just saying, well, I'm just asking, I'm just wondering. The opposite of love. I'm just saying that if Jenny hadn't joined the anti-war movement, uh, maybe she wouldn't have gotten a certain disease. Am I right? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. This is how it concludes. This is the next paragraph. The opposite of love is not hate, Eli Wiesel said, but indifference. And Hanks put the challenge before his audience of rising leaders and explorers, artists and environmentalists, teachers and technologists, every day, every year, and for every graduating class, there is a choice to be made. It's the same option for all grown-ups who have to decide to be one of the three types of America. Hanks said, those who embrace liberty and freedom for all, those who won't, or those who are indifferent. Bracing as the words were, the action spoke louder. For those of us in the truth business, which is to say, all of us, it was an actor who never finished college who set a standard. 
we can work to live up to. So it has to be worked out. It does have to be. It has to be worked out, and it has to be worked out in an ecumenical way in which we understand that, guys, we're all in this together. <laughs> there, I, I'm, there is going to have, there is a win-win circumstance here that can only come about when everybody is paid their fair share. And what that fair share is, you know, it, you have to be dispassionate about what it's going to be. And believe me, I'm no expert in what this is. I only know that I'm, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm the same consumer at the end of the day as, as you are. Anyway, uh, among other things, the film Charlie Wilson's War demonstrates that, if nothing else, Mr. Thomas Hanks has a steadfast commitment to the truth, to rendering history with all the, all the warts and ugly details contained, because... The truth is a nuanced thing, folks. It's not a zero-sum game. It's not just about how you feel, okay? And that's what this film is primarily doing. Well, you know, there's a kind of micro-genre of movies that we've talked about on the podcast that are kind of Hollywood liberal movies about how you need a guy in the middle who can work all sides. You know, like Rob Reiner's LBJ. Uh, you know, we, I don't think we've done an episode on it, but Spielberg's Lincoln is kind of like the best of these movies, you know, the definitive one. And in this movie, that guy is Charlie Wilson. A Texas house rep, a rather undistinguished one as we first meet him. He's content to spend his career under the radar. Being a politician is an excuse to live the high life for him. I just want to say, though, quickly, there is a little sort of prologue in this movie. You know, this movie sort of takes you right to the end, where right at the beginning you get this stirring speech where, you know, Charlie Wilson is getting this, you know, uh, award that is, you know, very rarely bequeathed to a civilian by, you know, the august institution that is the Central Intelligence Agency. And there's like swelling music and everything, you know, a tearful Amy Adams who plays his assistant in this movie or his chief of staff or something. She looks on just welling up. And I mean, basically, it's the beginning of uh, Saving Private Ryan, except if instead of it being about like fighting Nazis and crushing the Third Reich, it's about like supporting the Contras and bombing Cambodia. Like that's where this current of like Cold War era American patriotism reimagined here for the war on terror. Uh, that's where it, it fits in. Charlie Wilson didn't always used to be that great man. Uh, well, thing is, he's cynical, he's unethical, but in a fun way. He's a Democrat. He likes cocaine. He likes strippers. But um, in an early scene when... <laughs> scene at the beginning is unreal. Okay, in an early scene... he's in the hot tub. Well, that's great. You get to see Tom Hanks' ass, by the way. Um, there's a scene early on after that hot tub scene where... And this, this is when I knew we were in for a treat. A rich Texan comes into Charlie Wilson's office in Washington and basically asks him to, like, call up a judge and make a charge go away. And Charlie Wilson says, well, no, I can't do that. That'd be against a lot of laws and very unethical. So the arc that he has is that he's like a guy who doesn't care. He likes to party, but he ends up finding his conscience and doing something great. But also Sorkin and Nichols feel the need in like the second or third scene of the movie to say he's so innately principled <laughs> that he's turning away a guy who's telling him to do crimes just because he can't find a way to do those crimes. I, I want to I talk a little bit about the hot tub scene, though, that precedes this, because I thought this scene was absolutely incredible. The, it really serves no function other than exposition. And the two principal well, pieces... Well, it's character building. Well, right. So that's yeah. one is it's establishing like this Charlie Wilson guy, you know, he's a little he's a little bit potty mouth. He's uh, he's incredibly horny, which is like a big thing that runs throughout this movie. And the film almost represents like if it was not for this guy's visceral horniness, the Berlin Wall might still be up. The Iron Curtain would still be would still be standing. 
But I mean, the scene where he's, you know, he and a bunch of, you know, other other goons from Congress are in this hot tub with all these nude ladies. It's there to establish that. But the scene is also there to establish. Yeah, but don't worry. He he cares uh, because there's a TV in the corner that's like showing some news clips or something. And he's like, wait, wait what's that? Is that... Dan, Dan Rather's talking about the Mujahideen. T- turn it up. And th- the film represents this as like, right out of the gate, he's having this road to Damascus moment where it's like, well, I mean, the pleasures of the flesh are all well and good, but have you guys heard about this communism thing that's happened overseas? This this sounds like trouble. Yeah, you can tell that this movie is made by like hardcore <laughs> friends and supporters of the Clinton family because like this movie is a product of a time when Bill Clinton is still the liberal standard bearer in America. He's the definitive American Democrat politician where it's like yeah you know he's a little slimy he's a little greasy he consorts with some pretty uh unsavory types you know he uh he's, yeah, he's probably done drugs you he know. has a little trouble keeping it zipped up and uh you know he likes to party but he also he also does his homework and he if the tv has the mujahideen on it he's watching he's, the tv he, he's watching the news he's got one eye on the he's a news guy and at the and at the end of the day like what you the audience what really matters to you does a little partying matter or does the does the seriousness of this man matter you know I think you're right that this is very much an Obama era movie, or it's a movie that predicts the Obama era in fundamental ways. But I think you're also right to sort of ha- offer up Bill Clinton as a sort of anchor for this type of, I don't know, liberal masculinity. And I was struck by how poorly this is aged because the character and everything about him is, just, is he's, it's unbelievably misogynistic. Like the film represents his sexism as this sort of charming quirk in a way that I think oh, it's so, rightly you would yeah. not be able to do and should not do in a film today. You it's know? so Aaron Sorkin, like the Amy Adams character, who's this kind of like long suffering stick in the mud assistant is like such an Aaron Sorkin character. All the all his staff are all these like attractive women and they all are just incredibly attracted to him. Now, Charlie Wilson is a Democrat, but he wheels and deals across the spectrum. One of his friends is the wealthy Texas socialite Joanne Herring, played by Julia Roberts, who leads what is described by the Amy Adams character as an ultra-right-wing group of anti-communist fanatics. When has a group with that description ever been associated with anything heinous? She wants Charlie Wilson to take more seriously the plight of the Afghan people who currently suffer under the Soviet invasion. The two of them, by the way, are strange bedfellows, both politically and and literally. literally, Yes. By the way, there are a lot of very important historical details that are left out. Not only about no. what not not only about what happened after the events depicted in the film, like the film has this like unbelievably sanitized happy ending, but also there's no mention of the fact that the United States was was shipping arms to the Mujahideen before the Soviet invasion, and that I believe it was Jimmy Carter's chief of defense staff, or certainly one of the guys whose names I always mispronounce. Uh, people will know him talking about uh, Brzezinski, Brzezinski, whatever. I'm embarrassed, embarrassingly butchering his name, but he. He, he basically came out and said explicitly like, oh, yeah, we uh, got entangled in, in here in the 70s. And our, uh, you know, our intention was to draw the uh, USSR into a devastating proxy war. That would you uh, would you believe is not mentioned in the in the film that, you know, because the United States never sort of is involved in these things. This is something that, uh, you know, the great media critic and, uh, you know, co-host of Citations Needed, Adam Johnson, has pointed out over and over again about how one of the phrases you constantly see and I think have seen for decades in American discourse anytime a war is involved is, you know, America never declares war, it never enters a war, it's always sliding into war. 
because America never does this stuff in a sort of, you know, casual or cavalier way. You know, it often has to be pushed or that's the that's the implication, not the reality, which is that the United States, you know, particularly during the Cold War, was intimately involved in multiple theaters all over the world all the time, was very interested in intervening even when, you know, its presence wasn't explicit. Tom Hanks and Aaron Sorkin uh, have a slightly different perspective on things. Swayed by the Julia Roberts character, who is, you know, one of the richest women in Texas, he goes to the Middle East, meets with political leaders in Pakistan who are basically uninterested in the empty platitudes that he's offering them of his eagerness to help. They want action. They want arms. And his heart really begins to open up when he starts to meet the poor Afghan kids who have been disfigured by landmines, landmines shaped like toys that the Soviets have planted. You know, it should be said that the Russians barely appear in this movie. There's a handful of scenes. I mean, this is, again, this is how cynical and grotesque this movie is. You know, there's a reason why I mentioned that Call of Duty thing earlier, but there's these scenes where, you know, it's it's Soviet helicopters just sort of mercilessly gunning down children in the streets and stuff. And it's like... And the one we see is that guy in the there's the pilot in the cockpit who's like, eh, I hate women. I am a misogynist. Yeah, ba- he, yeah, ba- basically, they're just having sort of this offhanded, like, bro chat as they're, you know, shooting civilians Just so you don't feel bad about them getting fucking killed two seconds later. That's, that's right. The thing about this is, I mean, it's like, it's as if the Vietnam War you know, never took place. I mean, you know, America never does anything like this. It's never done anything like this. Other nations, you know, they're motivated by sort of, you know, uh, sinister imperial design or, you know, they're motivated to advance a sinister ideological project. The United States stays out of things, often to a fault. It needs principled patriots like Charlie Wilson and, you know, CIA guys who helped, you know, prop up the far-right junta in Greece after a coup. (laughs) And, you know, right-wing Christian nationalists like the Julia Roberts character, you know, it it needs people like this to push it in the right direction. And it only ever gets involved in things in the interests of, you know, pure reasons that have to do with human rights, you know, completely pristine. It doesn't have national interests that have to do with oil or just sort of the crudeness of geopolitical brinksmanship. No, no, no. Other countries have those things. America would never. I want to know, how are you going to get the approval of Congress when they're saying no to the Contras for nothing, for $5 million request made? by the president. When a black approach makes it through this subcommittee, the full body has to vote on it blind. They know the dollar amount, but they don't know what it's for. So theoretically, your $10 million can become $40 million without anyone ever noticing but the Russian army. Because Congress wouldn't notice voting on it. That's the beauty of it. All you need are the nine other subcommittee members. All I really need is a committee chairman. Doc Long. Doc Long. His heart torn asunder by the sight of these injured Afghan children. Charlie Wilson goes to his superiors asking if they can find it in their hearts to bring money and weaponry to the brave Mujahideen fighters of Afghanistan. They say no, this would be too conspicuous. It would draw attention to American meddling in the Middle East if they would only hear those refugee stories. And Luke, I want to tell you, you know, just a just a personal story of what happened to me when I was a kid. You see, I had a neighbor. His name was Mr. Hazard. He was the head of a town council. You know, I had a dog who I loved and Mr. Hazard hurt my dog. He tried to kill my dog. And I was 13 at the time. Now, town councilors like that are almost never defeated. But I went to the black neighborhoods and drove everyone there to the ballot box and told them, just so you know, Mr. Hazard 
tried to kill my dog. And at the end of the day, Mr. Hazard lost by 16 votes. And you know what? That's why I love America. That's the day I came to love America. This was the moment in the movie where I very nearly threw my remote at the TV screen because I just could not. I mean, this is never doubt that a small group of committed idealists can can make a difference in America. Just the model and delivery of this as he and Amy Adams are, you know, they're coming back from Afghanistan on a plane and she's basically like welling up as he's giving this he's this just been denied speech just been denied funding for the mujahideen rebel fighters and this is what he remembers that he was able to harness democracy to oust the unjust local town councilor and that's by golly that's what he's going to do now because america's a land of opportunity you know, you know you mentioned we the people well i mean just further to your point about this sort of being a a, a prototypical obama era movie i mean that very much jibes with a sort of obama era sort of conception of like the greatness of America, right? One of the things in the in the wonderful uh, Cory Robin essay for Descent about the Obama-nots, I think it was called, was one of the features he recognized of Obama was his moral minimalism. Uh, that was what Robin called it. And one of the things you find throughout Obama's speeches, um, you know, this was recognized as well very early, as early as 1996 by Adolph Reed in that prophetic essay where Obama was just a state senator at, at this point. Professor Reed was saying like, no, no, this is like, this is the future. All of this rhetoric, which, you know, Obama sort of pioneered at the state level and then took national about, you know, small meetings in kitchens and small scale solutions to community, you know, community based solutions to problems and things like that. And then, you know, meanwhile, paired with all of this sort of soaring oratory that is delivered in this register of optimism and progress, but is actually constantly emphasizing patience and imperfection and how you just need to wait because the greatness of America is such that eventually like a thousand small acts will culminate in, you know, a landmark piece of legislation like the Affordable Care Act that is eventually definitely going to get America towards socialized medicine, except not really. That is what the theme of this Charlie Wilson speech is. I mean, think about in the history of the United States, all of the great titanic struggles that have occurred. Think about the civil rights movement and an anecdote that you could pluck from that. And, you know, I don't know, it, this movie is what it is. So maybe it would just it would be just as saccharine. But this is not about a voting drive in the South or something. It's about he experienced a personal slight. He was able to mobilize voters, which for some reason in the anecdote are black voters to like. Oh, for some reason. Correct. Well, yeah. Right. I mean, to correct this injustice about this guy who was like hostile to his dog. I'm mostly curious, like how this story applies to the, the current situation of we got to get more arms t- to <laughs> Afghanistan. Like that's not something you mobilize voters to do. I guess you, I guess you mobilize Congress. Is that that is that how it applies? Well, except fucking not even Mo- because mobilize you mobilize even... <laughs> the Israeli and Egyptian governments to cooperate. Well, I mean, during the Reagan era, especially there was all kinds of just bypassing of Congress entirely. And that's one of the other things about this film that's so incredibly cynical. I'm going to give you this saccharine anecdote about, you know, the greatness of America and, and, you know, her democracy. And then we're going to graph that on to this story of all of these militarized institutions that, you know, operate secretively and basically exist outside of democratic control. And we're going to tell you, be grateful for this. Celebrate this. You know, this is what's allowing you to go vote a guy out who was mean to a dog. So Charlie works with the CIA operative Gust Avocados discussed earlier on the episode. The function he serves in the movie is like he's the guy who, you know, gets his hands dirty so that Charlie doesn't. And it's I mean, it's fucking crazy. Like, I mean, I, I could not find any allusion to his work uh, in Greece, if I can put it that way. 
But there is a moment partway through the film, somewhere in Act Two, where Wilson's complaining, like, you know, he's taken the five million in funding up to 10 million, and then it, you know, eventually gets up to hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, the film kind of represents this as like, no one had ever thought to do this before. It's like, we this just was... spent money on anti communism. <laughs> yeah. We can, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, we... God, we we're funneling into abstract it's expressionist like... art. Yeah, we should have just been getting I weapons. Mean, in the same way that Ben Affleck and Matt Damon want to celebrate, like, Nike pioneering, like, a particular way of marketing a shoe, this film is sort of like, would you believe it? No, it is invented proxy wars before <laughs> amazing but there's a scene where he's frustrated with you know congress's refusal to you know keep forking over the money or whatever whatever the congressional committee he's on that controls the purse strings and at some point in you know one of these scenes he ends up saying to avrocodos if this was a real war we'd be doing what you did in latin america and it's like do you do, do, do do the people who made this movie, do they care what the United States did in Latin America? I mean, it's th th I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm having I'm having trouble actually discussing this movie because I think it is one of the most viscerally repellent things I've ever seen. And it's so incredible that it's like there's not even like the, the, the structure, the cultural structures that give you a film like Charlie Wilson's War. I mean, they're not even like directly coercive. This is voluntary. They don't need like a state board to come up with this. This is just being churned out by one of the supposed bastions of American liberalism. And I would note at a time when, you know, here's another way it rhymes with the zeitgeist of early Obamaism. This film came out in 2007. And if you remember the way Obama, you know, who, who one of his principal points of appeal was nominally against the Iraq war. Now, people won't remember, probably it's a long time ago now, the speech Obama gave against the Iraq war. I would highly advise you to go back and read it, because if you read it, it's not an anti-war speech. It's a speech about how the idea of invading Iraq is not, you know, rational and sane, but Afghanistan is the good war. And that was very much the line, the tack Obama took in 2007, 2008 as well. Iraq is the war that was, you know, and this is true, was, you know, completely faulty premises, you know, and then the sort of neocon pivot to like, oh, we're doing nation building, you know, people didn't really buy that, they wanted out of it. But you could sort of tell people a story about like, well, in Afghanistan, we're doing nation building. And of course, we've all known since the withdrawal in 2021 that, you know, they did so much nation building that, uh, yeah, the, the government they supported collapsed within about two weeks of the withdrawal. Oh, and then, by the way, they confiscated Afghanistan's central bank funds and caused over 20 million people to starve. The kinds of details about American conduct on the world stage that are not present in a film like Charlie Wilson's War. Another thing the film just bludgeons you with, and I'm not saying this to be funny, it really is true. Watch the film if you don't believe me. This film is so obsessed with how horny Charlie Wilson is. There's some dialogue written in where he and Julia Roberts are doing some banter in bed or something, and the film has to make a point about how he's made her climax twice. Everything about this film is ridiculous. Then there's another scene that's closer to Act 3 where they're on the phone and he's sort of saying, am I ever going to see you again? You know, I'll miss you or whatever. And then she just says, where's it at, Charlie? Meaning the funds for the Mujahideen. And I don't think it's too heavy handed to say, I mean, this is really setting up like what's driving this movie forward is, you know, because this is in many ways just a conventional Hollywood film, it has to be driven forward by this kind of, you know, his personal arc and this romance plot. So it's basically saying like, ah, there were tough times, there were doubts. But what pushed him forward is the fact that he wanted to sleep with Julia Roberts again. Ridiculous. Now, at the very end of this film, there is a little bit of cursory nods to the idea that there might be some blowback happening. Man, OK, I loved this scene <laughs> where the Soviet union's been defeated everyone's happy all the, all the congressional staff are sitting around watching like the news and it's like the last soviet apcs are rolling across the border back you know and they're, they're all just like 
cheering and tearing up. And and, in, and there's this this wonderful scene where uh, Charlie Wilson is at a table in a boardroom with a couple of government guys. You need to help the Afghanistan people now. You know they don't have any money for education. They don't have anything. And the, and the government guys are like, what? help people we would never do that i don't even know what afghanistan is get the fuck out of my office there's a perfunctory line about something like the crazies are rolling into kandahar and charlie wilson has another wonderful line where he says something like you know a lot of those mujahideen fighters are 14 years old now and he says without saying imagine how old they'll be on september 11th 2001 Right. So the denouement of this film, the final message is that Reaganism was fundamentally good. All of the Reaganite Cold War anti-communism, which, as we all know, was always on the side of democracy and human rights and didn't overthrow democratically elected governments or consort with people who violated human rights anywhere at any time. This movie, its criticism of Reaganism is basically like this didn't go far enough. It didn't it didn't do the next step, which is like the liberal part of this, where it's like, yeah, you've armed the like far right Christian militias in Latin America who were going around village to village killing children or whatever. That's all well and good. But, but now, after now you got you, you got to give te- schools for the children te- that survived. You got to teach them about human rights. <laughs> you got to teach them about feminism. <laughs> that's right. That's right. The film ends, and I swear to God, no mention of like, where did these people end up well, now? These we, so-called we Mujahideen. It's heavily implied where uh, they ended up. There's a quote from Charlie Wilson that appears on the screen at the end. It says, these things happened, they were glorious, and they changed the world, and then we fucked up the end game. So that's as much as you get. Now, I do just want to say, as a perhaps a tentative or, or provisional defense of Aaron Sorkin and his involvement in this film, and I'm saying this because, as, as everyone listening knows... Everything uh, else we'll, he did. It is we'll be, flawless. We'll be, so, as 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 many of you will be aware, I'm um, I'm not the biggest fan of Aaron Sorkin's corpus. You know, one of my sort of minor beats has been critiquing the West Wing as a kind of ur text of Obama era liberalism and as a sort of Rosetta Stone for decoding everything that that was wrong with it. But it does seem like you know I don't have the timeline here set out exactly, so I don't know exactly when Aaron Sorkin became involved. But it does seem like earlier versions of the script for this movie were nothing like the final product. And I think that's important to get on record here. Well, I do want to say I read uh, a year or two ago Mark Harris's biography of Mike Nichols, which is a good book, by the way, very well researched, very well written. Um, And the sense that I got is that this was a Tom Hanks production, like Hanks was the driver. And in fact, he kind of pushed around Nichols in the editing room a little bit. Yeah, well, further to that, uh, Melissa Roddy, the L.A.-based filmmaker who apparently had some kind of inside information about the production, she remarked that this happy ending where, you know, he's Charlie Wilson's getting an award and they all lived happily ever after. That existed because Tom Hanks saw the original draft, which ended with a scene that featured 9-11 happening. And he was not having any of this. This fucking guy. So Matthew Alford, who I guess got a look at the original screenplay, he wrote wrote in something called Real Power, Hollywood Cinema and American Supremacy. He wrote that, quote, uh, the film gave up the chance to produce what at least had the potential to be the Dr. Strangelove of our generation. So I think given that comment and given that I I believe he saw the original screenplay, which I I think may have been Aaron Sorkin's text, that at the inception of Charlie Wilson's war, there was a kernel of of a more jaundiced view of the American empire and kind of, you know, American entanglements abroad, if you want. And Tom 
Hanks was having none of it. Mike Nichols, you know, who is not an unintelligent filmmaker, uh, his comedy partner, Elaine May, in the 1980s, made a movie that this movie reminded me of quite a bit called Ishtar, starring Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, uh, which has been reclaimed a lot in recent years. And uh, I think maybe we should talk about it on the podcast because it's kind of like the good version of Charlie Wilson's War. You know, Beatty and Hoffman play two bumbling, you know, idiot songwriters who go to the Middle East and end up being proxies for an almost equally bumbling CIA and their interventions there. I represent the only district in America that doesn't want anything. They want their guns. They want low taxes. That's it. I can do favors. I get to vote yes a lot. You know, me and three other guys are killing Russians. I mean, is it possible that I've met the only elected official in town who can help? I want to close out this episode by just uh, reading a little bit from um, one of my favorite things I've read in the past few weeks. Uh, this was an essay in The New Republic by the writer and novelist Jacob Bacharach. It's called The True Mystery in James Comey's Crime Novel, What Do Politicos Turned Authors Know That We Don't? And it was kismet to encounter this, uh, you know, the same week we watched Charlie Wilson's War, because I do think Jacob finds something very interesting. He, he draws some very interesting insights from James Comey's incredibly boring novel that I think uh, are relevant. Uh, if we're thinking about a film like Charlie Wilson's War and the people it depicts. And Jacob's a wonderful writer as well, so it's wonderfully said. Uh, he begins by saying, A novel should be more than just an artifact of imagination. It should be an act of revelation. That's no less true of workaday genre books than it is of the most deliberately literary works. What distinguishes a good Michael Crichton or John Grisham book from the packs of airport imitators is neither tireless invention nor technical mastery of scene and plot, nor the skillful sketching of character, but a sense that even amid the trappings of fictional convention, they are showing us something about the world, grasping towards some kind of unique and uncomfortable truth beyond what we can find just by reading the papers and watching the news. This is why so many novels by politicians, government officials, and those in their orbit, and there are plenty of them, Newt Gingrich, Jim Webb, Lynn Cheney, the Clintons, are so frequently disappointing. Even at their wackiest, Gingrich's alternate histories, Cheney's ribald, semi-disavowed Western romance, they stop short of saying much. They perform the tricks, but they never pull back the curtain. James Comey would seem an ideal person to buck this habit. Now mostly remembered for his miserable stint as director of the FBI, stumbling gracelessly into the buzzsaw of the Clinton email scandal before raising the alarm about Russian election interference and getting unceremoniously canned by Donald Trump, Comey is a surprising zealot of the last quarter century of American politics. He arrived at the bureau at the tail end of the investigation into Bill Clinton's pardon of Mark Rich. He put Martha Stewart in jail. He was involved in the Valerie Plame affair, and he was at John Ashcroft's bedside when the Bush administration tried to strong-arm its drugged-up post-surgery attorney general into signing off on the National Security Agency's program of warrantless domestic wiretaps. His life since he left the FBI has followed a pattern typical for ex-government officials of a certain caliber. He has given speeches, gotten in himself a non-tenured appointment at a law school, and sold hundreds of thousands of copies of a score-settling but not unamusing memoir called A Higher Loyalty, Truth, Lies, and Leadership, which later became the Comey Rule, a bland Showtime miniseries that was nonetheless notable for the great Irish actor Brendan Gleeson's marvelous term as Donald Trump. The most interesting thing about Central Park West, so this is his novel, in a way the real mystery here is the strange sense that there is something missing. For all his power and access, all those decades of crime and secrets, Comey has produced any other middle-aged lawyer's clunky but passable fling at that courtroom novel he always threatened to write. 
does raise an almost depressing question. Does Comey, do any of these politicos turned authors have anything to reveal at all? Now, I just want to skip to the end of the piece where Jacob delivers kind of the, the kicker and the conclusion. How deflating then to discover that the most these semi-retired potentates of the great secret machinery of government can imagine amounts to a ripoff of more professionally written TV shows and mid-tier Hollywood action properties. How sorry it is to discover that after eight years as president or after being the most powerful man in Congress or years as secretary of state or director of the FBI, the tales they produce, the fantasies, those who've actually held such power, who knew all the secrets are the same fantasies as any schlub watching Air Force One while he irons his shirts in an airport Sheraton on his way to a sales conference. It is as if Dan Brown rushed his wild investigators into the heart of the Vatican to discover only that the Pope eats Cheerios for breakfast and enjoys reruns of Friends. Of course, it might all be a feint. The dullness, the limited stories, the banality. It could all be a form of camouflage to render the romanced dream lives of our rulers so utterly quotidian that we cease to wonder about the actual reality that must lie beneath. But somehow I don't think so. They are all as depressingly ordinary as they appear. They have the same pop culture saturated ideas about terrorism, the mafia, the cops, the spies, the operators, as the rest of us. Chatbots endlessly recombining the same familiar stories in slightly different order. He was one of us, the poet Robert Lowell said of Mussolini, only pure prose and less miraculous. Isn't that sad? That at the end of the day, none of our great and powerful have much to reveal, and they are all exactly, depressingly, precisely what they appear to be. Telling the truth can be dangerous business. Honest and popular don't go hand in hand. If you admit that you can play the accordion, no one will hire you in a rock and roll band. But we can sing our hearts out. And if we're lucky, then no neighbors complain. Nobody knows where the beginning part starts out. But being human, we can live with the pain. Because life. 